Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Reorient Podcast. My name is Jesse Friedlander, your host. Today is the 18th of February, 2022, in Hong Kong. And I am very pleased today to be joined by Ambassador Ted Osius, who is a very esteemed and experienced uh, diplomat with um, 30 years uh, in the U.S. Foreign Service. And he was the ambassador to Vietnam from 2014 to 2017. And he uh, is the author of a wonderful book about that experience, which I read, which is called Nothing is Impossible, America's Reconciliation with Vietnam. And it's also worth noting that uh, Ambassador Osius was only the second gay career diplomat in the United States. And he is now based in Washington, D.C., with his uh, husband and children, and I'm very pleased to have him with me today. So, Ambassador, thank you for joining the Reorient Podcast. Jesse, I'm delighted to chat with you. And uh, hello, Hong Kong. It's morning for you. It's evening for us here in Washington, D.C. That's right. And we're a day ahead. Uh, so we always okay. say we're a little bit ahead in Hong Kong, um, as you are. was the case in Vietnam. Um, so, um First of all, I, I did enjoy your book, and I would recommend anyone who has an interest in Vietnam uh, to read it because you clearly have a passion for Vietnam and a strong understanding of Vietnam. And there will be a lot of topics we'll uh, we'll touch on today. Um, but well, thank what I'd you like for to, reading the book. Yeah, so I, yeah, I appreciate that you read the book. It was for you said this podcast for you is a labor of love. The book for me was a labor of love. I spent a lot of time in Vietnam, and I really wanted to tell some stories. I can appreciate that. It would be, honestly, maybe a book I normally wouldn't necessarily um, you know, pick up out of the bookstore because I'm not um, a Vietnam expert by any chance, but I'm really glad I read it, and you had some wonderful stories, and it really gave me a... Um, an appreciation for the role of ambassador, uh, which I hadn't, you know, understood, and, and you you provide a lot of anecdotes uh, of what the and, and also how an ambassador can make his his or own her his or her own mark uh, on a, on a country and has a fair amount of autonomy. I thought that was very interesting. Um, Thank you. So maybe before we you know go into some of the main issues, if you could just share a little bit with our listeners, you know, what um, attracted you to the Foreign Service and, and you dedicated your career to diplomacy and, and, and just a bit of you about your background. Thanks. Um, I spent some time in the Middle East in between college, in between high school and college. I took a, a, a gap year and I got interested in cultures that were different from my own. And that, and I actually got interested in the Arab-Israeli conflict and you know, being a, an American, I thought, well, this needs to be fixable. This must be something that we can we can resolve. Um, well, this many years later, and we still haven't really fixed it. But I, I, that interest in what problems could be solved and where where an individual could make a contribution stayed with me. And I got interested in Asia from my very first tour. Was the Philippines? That was the Philippines. And I discovered even in that tour that, in fact, a diplomat can make a difference. You can 
contribute to the improvement of relations. And I guess I, there was no place in the world where it came home to me more than in Vietnam, where we had an old enemy and we were trying to create a new friendship. And I, I, I had the great privilege of being there at the beginning when we first normalized relations and then returning as ambassador a number of years later. And it was a dream, dream come true for me to have that job. And so I felt compelled to write about it uh, in this book and to write about the people who made a big difference in that relationship. Well, um, I would first say as someone who I followed the um, Israeli-Palestinian and to some extent Israeli-broader Arab um, conflict over many decades, and I think you were very wise not to uh, <laughs> spend your uh, career because I know a lot of uh, diplomats uh, were having the same conversations 20, 30 years uh, later in their career. So uh, I think you made a wise choice to, to look at Asia as, uh, in terms of uh, diplomacy. Well, I felt like in Asia, there were positive stories to tell. There were good things happening in Asia. So once I kind of got hooked on Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, I never let go because I felt the, the tectonic plates were moving and the United States had a role to play and a diplomat could make a difference. And I think the, you know, 30 years, during the 30 years I spent in that part of the world, that proved true. Absolutely. And not to get uh, sidetracked, but it does look like perhaps the Middle East now has, has turned the corner and has a lot of exciting stories today. Uh, and, and we've had some guests um, on, on this podcast actually of talking about that. So so hopefully um, the Middle East will look like uh, Asia has been for the last uh, few decades. So what, um, and again, we're going to focus on Vietnam, but I was just curious before we do that, you know, what were some of the, um, your favorite postings in your, um, in your, your long story? career? Uh, we loved Indonesia. My, my husband and I were there together, and we thought Indonesia was, was pretty magical. People were incredibly hospitable to us. Here we were, an openly gay couple in a Muslim-majority country, and we couldn't have had a warmer, better welcome anywhere in the world than we had in Indonesia. We also really loved India, and and that was also a country where there was so much happening. It was colorful and dynamic and all these different languages and religions. And it was another place where we got to make a difference. In, in India and in Indonesia, we were creating comprehensive partnerships with countries from which we've been estranged for a long time. So I learned how to do it in India and I learned how to do it in Indonesia. And then I was able to apply some of those lessons to Vietnam. So I would say those three were the favorites, but I loved Thailand. I loved the Philippines. I lived in Singapore working for Google. I loved that. Um, I loved all of my years in Asia. Well, I think you had a, a, a very unique position within Asia of, of really uh, managing and, and trying to foster good relationships on a very high level. Um, so very few people have that experience. You know, maybe we are trying to foster relationships at a company level or, you know, maybe in a, in a community, but you're doing it on a very high level. And I think just very interesting. Clearly the United States uh, has very deep relations with almost all countries in Asia and Vietnam in, in any, in many ways is, was the exception uh, given the, um, the long war that the uh, U S was engaged in in Vietnam. And, um, 
for myself, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was clear that that um, the war and the aftermath of the war left a deep imprint on the psyche of Americans. I won't even get into the impact on Vietnamese. And so Vietnam um, seems to have uh, have or had have have had a special role in the psyche of the United States, uh, one of uh, perhaps of um, a, a negative uh, sense of about, you know, what perhaps what the United States stands for, perhaps our power, perhaps how we treat our own citizens, our own military. I mean, again, I'm just p- positing a few. I'm sure you could talk more about that. But yeah, what what's your sense for as an American for, for the importance of Vietnam, um, you know, historically and then, you know, on to today? I do think that Vietnam plays a unique role in the United States and in the American psyche. It really was the first war that we didn't win. And, you know, up till then, we'd had a long winning streak, a long successful streak in terms of our engagements with the rest of the world. And we didn't win. We, we, uh, we waged a long, bloody, terrible war. 58,000 Americans were killed. As many as three million Vietnamese were killed, and and we look back on it, and I think most people have concluded it it wasn't a well designed or well implemented war. It was it was a mistake, and uh, we now have in this country two point two million Americans of Vietnamese origin, and we have a lot of veterans from that era. So there are a lot of people in this country who feel an intense attachment one way or another to Vietnam. It can be, the sentiments could be very negative, or in some cases, they're very positive. And it was only really, you know, about 25 years ago that people started saying, well, maybe we can think of Vietnam as something, it's not just a war, but it's something, it's actually a country. Uh, And I think it was John Kerry who uh, first coined that phrase publicly, think of Vietnam as a country, not a war. And uh, I had the, you know, the great good fortune to be able to see it after the war. I'm not a veteran. I, I was able to learn about it as a fascinating country and not just a, a, a place where we'd had a terrible conflict. Yeah. I think for a lot of Americans who weren't, uh, personally involved in Vietnam, their exposure understanding is, is via, you know, movies or perhaps yes. television or, or perhaps for older people who were watching, you know, news reporters like Dan Rather reporting from the, the field, but it was intermediated by the media. And so yes. um, for the most part, it really was about war and conflict. But I'm curious, when you arrived in Vietnam, what was the perspective you learned about Vietnamese about the war? That uh, you know how you know what's their national consciousness or psyche towards the, the the war memories. Well, this was a big surprise, and actually, I still think about how Vietnamese view us as pretty amazing. From the minute I set foot in Vietnam, first time was in early 1996. The, what I kept experiencing was that people had moved on. It was only less than 25 years after, and people had already decided it was time to to think about the future. And that was amazing to me. I I, I think it's been amazing to many 
Americans who've gone to Vietnam to find not only forgiveness, but really warm welcome. And I, I, I learned that from my, my very first trip, and I continued to be astonished by the level of warmth and welcome that I received as ambassador. And uh, I remember one time going to see some children, some of whom had been affected by Agent Orange. And then I was asked, did I want to meet some veterans? There were veterans of the war nearby. And I was a little uneasy. wasn't sure how, as the U.S. ambassador, I was going to be received. But I walked over to this group of older men. And the first thing that happened is they wrapped their arms around me. And I got the warmest possible welcome. But that really happened everywhere in Vietnam. We were welcome as Americans from almost from the moment we normalized relations. And I think it's, the, it's a, something that is quite stunning about the Vietnamese national character, that people are so willing to look forward and think about what will be good for their children and their grandchildren, and not to dwell too much on the past. Um, I can actually confirm the dynamic you mentioned because as a civilian, I traveled to Vietnam in 1995 and I was very apprehensive. Uh, again, you know, having watched all these war movies and, and you know, we, you know, we were the enemies and I received exactly the same type of warm welcome that you did. And I was really blown away because I was so nervous for the first day or two, you know, uh, going in, again, 1995, soon after um, the re-normalization of relations and uh, really just um, just very impressed at the, at, the, at the resilience and the optimism and the uh, welcoming that uh, the Vietnamese uh, people displayed. I've concluded, because this is so peculiar, I've concluded it has to somehow arise from Vietnam's unique history. And the Vietnamese have experienced so many wars, I think 22 wars with China alone. They were colonized by France and fought against the French. They fought against us. They fought against the Cambodians when they, when they invaded Cambodia. They fought against the Chinese yet again from 1979 to 1991. It's, it's been such, there's been so much conflict in their history that I think the way people have adapted is to focus on the future. And uh, and really to think about well how can how can we move forward from all of this sorrow? And um, what you just described to some extent, I found was reflected in the in your book in terms of the joint statements and the policy of the United States and Vietnam Vietnam in terms of uh, normalization. Um, to be honest, I was a little bit surprised that there wasn't. Uh, more mm, responsibility taken by, from, by the United States in terms of per, you know wrongdoings done by United States, but it seemed to me there was this um, philosophy that rather than digging into you know the weeds of what happened in the past, what transpired, and who was wrong and who was right, it was much more of a forward-looking uh, type of policy. And obviously, there was. A lot of feelings and sentiment, particularly among the, uh, the the veterans who had many had sacrificed um, their lives or their friends had sacrificed their lives, and and wanting you know to be 
respected for their service and, and perhaps other considerations. But I was very much, um, again, a little bit surprised, but I could see some wisdom in the policy of of really um, not assigning too much blame or responsibility uh, in that relationship. But could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, there was even a saying in Vietnam, which is close the door in the past and re- remain focused on the future. And that doesn't mean forget about the past because the Vietnamese did engage with us about legacies of war uh, very, pretty consistently. But what I found was if we dealt honestly with the past, we got the best results. And uh, we started early in the relationship, the focus was on fullest possible accounting for those whom the United States had lost in the war. And that was really the basis on which we built a relationship was you know, based on working together to overcome that particular legacy of the war. But then we moved on and, and from an announcement that Bill Clinton made when he, he first visited Vietnam, we started cleaning up unexploded ordinance. And then starting with uh, George W. Bush's administration, we began cleaning up dioxin. And, or we began talking honestly about dioxin, preparing to clean it up, and then subsequently we began actually cleaning it up. And what we only really more recently have come to grips with is the other legacy of dioxin which is not just that it's still in the soil and in some places, but there are people who uh, have been profoundly affected by ingesting dioxin or one way or another, uh, it has entered the, the DNA of uh, the cell structure of, of individuals and has been passed on from generation to generation. And studies show that the effects last, you know, as many as four generations. And, um, that we haven't really fully come to grips with. So uh, just um, may, just maybe follow just a little bit more on that. Uh, we're referring really to Agent Ar- Orange, right? Yes. The, um, um, the chemical in there, um, which may be, you know, looking at the war, it perhaps is the, the most mm, salient area where you could see the United States having done tremendous harm against uh, the population there. Could you just talk a little bit more like what debt does the United States really owe uh, towards Vietnam? I don't know how much was known at the time that it was being used and perhaps it was actually being used, you know, in, in, in the United States and other places. But um, maybe just a little bit more about, you know, what that issue was and to what extent um, the debt hasn't fully been repaid. Well, I felt really strongly that if we were going to have a healthy relationship with Vietnam, we had to be honest about the past. And that didn't mean we had to fix every problem, but it, we had to be honest about it. And I, the third U.S. ambassador to Vietnam, a, a gentleman named Michael Marine, had seized this political third rail when he challenged the U.S. government to start dealing with the effects of dioxin. Dioxin is a byproduct of the production of Agent Orange, a defoliant. And he, he said, we've got to look at the science. You know, we've got to look at what actually, what has caused these birth defects that we're seeing in Vietnam. Um, what are what are the actually, the impacts on, on human health of dioxin? 
And uh, around that time, the Ford Foundation uh, um, uh, commissioned a study which showed that there were some key places where there were still hotspots, still a lot of Daxin. There were because there had been a lot of mythology. Well, there's Daxin everywhere. It's soaking the soil everywhere. And anytime you eat any Vietnamese fruit or or produce or anything, you're gonna you're at risk. Well, that turns out not to be true. It had dispersed in most places, but it was still there was still a lot of Daxin in three places where there had been airfields. And the UN had kind of closed off one, covered it up with concrete, and it was no long, no longer posed a threat. But there were two more where actually in Vietnam, people were still fishing out of ponds that had dioxin in them. And in a place called Bien Hoa, uh, people were still playing in the, in the water or, or eating ducks that had eat, eaten fish in that water. Um, and that was the biggest and the worst hotspot. When I was ambassador, we pretty much finished the process of cleaning up Da Nang. And so no one else was ever going to be affected by the accident near the, uh, the Da Nang airport. But we hadn't finished that process in Bien Hoa. And I became very focused on this as ambassador because I knew there were still people being affected by the accident. So I thought our responsibility was we could do this with the Vietnamese or with the international community, but one way or another, we had to stop people from being affected by dioxin because I knew anyone who was affected, even in recent times, that would be carried on generation after generation after generation. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.